Good morning. What do you think it would feel like, look like, for God to appear to you right now? What would it feel like? What would it be like in our community if God showed up, as people say? Uh, we had a, a week of events a few weeks ago um, here in Ammonford where we went out into the streets and we were asking people, do you believe in God? If so, what kind of God do you believe in? Um, if he was there and you could ask him one question, what would you ask him? Asking all these kind of different questions to people on the streets. And one of the common responses to pe when people said that they didn't believe in God was that they just thought there wasn't enough evidence. So I like to ask people who say that, well, what kind of evidence do you think there would be of God? If God were to show himself, if he were to prove to us that he exists, well, how would he do that? What would it look like for God to show up? What would it look like for him to be present? How would that change me? How would it change you? How would it change our community? Well, that's what this story is all about. Um, just a few verses in Acts chapter 4 we're going to look at today. It's the story, a kind of a big flyover overview story of what happened when God came in power into the lives of the early church community. We're Acts chapter 4, and we're going to read from verse 31. If you've not been following the story over the last couple of weeks, let me fill you in. Um, the disciples, two of Jesus' followers, Peter and John, did an, a beautiful miracle. They helped a man who is disabled to walk again. But they got in trouble for that, so they get dragged before the religious authorities and told to be silent about Jesus. You see, they would healed this man in the power, in the name of Jesus. But the religious authorities don't like that because, remember, they crucified Jesus. So they try and silence them and, um, and send them away, saying, basically, don't speak, to, don't speak about Jesus again. Well, what do the disciples do? Well, they go home and pray. That's what Sammy was talking about last week, the second half of chapter four. They go home, they get together. Maybe they're feeling a little bit intimidated, feeling a little bit scared. All the authorities are against them, but they get together and they pray and they remind themselves of who God really is. That he's the God who's sovereign, who's king over absolutely everything. That all times and actions, everything is really in his hands. He's in control. And they ask him for boldness and courage. And then this happens. Okay, verse 31, Acts chapter 4, if you want to follow along. After they had prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostle called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, that was his nickname, Barnabas, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. It's a beautiful little picture of what God happens when he's among us. Why don't we pray and ask him to be with us, ask him to change us, ask him to help us understand what he's written for us in this story. Lord, we pray as we get into this story that you would open our hearts, open our minds, um, to what you would have us to learn, but Lord, not just to learn in, uh, in this moment, but what to do with that. Uh, Lord, this is a passage about really practical service, about practical generosity, about practical love for those around us. So we pray that you'd pour your love into our hearts, pour your grace into our hearts, that we'd be rich in grace 
and then rich towards you and rich in others. Lord, help us to understand this passage, but not just with our minds, with our whole lives. Help us to put it into action for your glory, we pray. Amen. So what happens when God comes in power? Do you see that? That was in verse 31. They pray and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's poured out on them again. The whole building where they are is shaken and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, there's maybe two big things that happen. Um, one is they speak, there's proclamation, begins with a P, and the other one is it changes the people. Okay, so there's proclamation, powerful proclamation, and the people change too. Something happens to them, not just individually though, with, um, with their whole community. So let's go and look at that, that power. So God's power comes, God's presence comes in the Holy Spirit, and they speak. That's something that we notice. That's right in the end of verse 31. They spoke the word of God boldly. Do you remember they'd been silenced or they'd been told to shut up? And the Lord comes in his presence in his Holy Spirit and helps them to speak up boldly. No fear if they had any beforehand. He's going to give them exactly the words to say. He's going to help them to say it. He's going to not care what, what other people think of them. They're now the big thing in their life is what God thinks of them. And that was what it was like before. But now it's even more so because God's spirit is among them. And what is it that they're sharing? What is it that they're proclaiming? Well, in verse 33, it tells us that. With great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's their message, that Jesus is alive. Maybe if you're thinking about that question, you know, what would be proof of God? What would be evidence of God? I think one thing would be if God were to step out of heaven and come and walk amongst us. Or if God were to step out of heaven, walk among us, and then die and come back to life again. And that's the story of Jesus, isn't it? Isn't that pretty good evidence that God is with us, that God exists, that he's walked on this earth? That we can read about that in the Bible, in these historical accounts of what happened. What happened to Jesus, what he said, what he did, and that he was killed. And on the third day, three days later, he rose again to life. That resurrection, Jesus coming back from the dead, or if you like, it's not kind of coming back from the dead, it's more like going through death and out the other side. If I had a kind of toilet roll tube here, you could think of that as death. When somebody's resuscitated in the hospital, it's like they go into this side of death and then they come back out again you know, with the, the A&E doctor's paddles and the electric shock or the mouth-to-mouth um, -mouth resuscitation, whatever uh, happens with somebody who's good at first aid, that's into this side of death, but then outside the other, uh, outside, back out the same side to die again one day. But Jesus is different, isn't he? His resurrection is into death and then exploding through the other side to a new kind of life, physical, but not mortal. I mean, they could see him, they could eat with him and drink with him, and they did. He made them barbecued fish on the beach. We looked at that around Easter time. Jesus had physical, real human life, but was more solid, more real, more overflowing, more good, more lasting, more beautiful, more full of grace than anything we've ever known. Jesus rose from the dead. And do you know what the rest of the message is? Not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but that you can too. That if you trust in him, if you give him your heart, your life, if you open the doors and welcome him in to be your God, then you'll be raised too. That that new life, Jesus' resurrection life, his outside of, other side of death life, comes into your heart now. That your heart's born again. 
that the stony heart that we have that's kind of turned against them, that's cold towards God, that doesn't really believe all the evidence that's around us, the stony heart that loves to do dark things and cover them up, that we can have new hearts, new lives, that we can begin again. You see, that resurrection is not just about Jesus rising in history. That really happened. You could look into it. There's really good evidence for that. It's not just about Jesus rising, though. It's about us being made new from the inside out. See, that's the that's the proclamation. That's the good news. That's what they're telling everybody about with boldness, with courage. And as that message goes out in power, that's the first thing that happens when God comes. People hear truth. People hear about Jesus specifically, about his resurrection, about new life that's found in him, about forgiveness, about new hearts, about hope beyond death. That's the first thing that happens when God comes. We get to know truth in this proclamation. Well, the second thing happens that happens is people are changed by that truth. People are born again and you begin to see differences in the way that they live, differences in the way that they think, differences in the things that they love. Did you see that in this passage as well? It's not just that they speak boldly. It's that people listen and they're changed because verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And then halfway through verse um, 33, God's grace, listen to this, was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. (laughs) Really? No needy person among them because God's grace was at work in their hearts. Isn't that beautiful? If you've been a Christian for a while, maybe... Maybe you've kind of got into the habit of thinking that when God comes close to us, when we begin to experience him, when we learn new stuff about him, when when he begins to blow our minds, when he's in when he's in our presence, what happens? We maybe get stuck into thinking that that's this kind of religious stuff happens, you know, that you feel lots and lots of love for God, that you kind of feel him present with you. And we do and we should. And that's really good. Maybe uh, maybe it's about worship experiences. Maybe that's the kind of thing, you know, when God shows up. Maybe you associate that with with amazing singing experiences when you're in the congregation together or at home listening to YouTube videos and, you know, that song comes on and you just feel wonderful. But it's not just about interesting, nice, religious experiences, is it, in this passage? Do you see that? God's grace is powerfully at work in them as they hear the apostles talk about Jesus. His grace, his undeserved goodness, this undeserved gift of God's love given to us. That's what grace is all about. This grace is so powerfully at work. It doesn't just give them fun religious experiences. It makes them generous. Do you see that? So this is the people part of it, right? This proclamation goes out and it changes the people. It makes them unified and generous. It's about unity and generosity. Do you see that? Right at the beginning, verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. One heart, one mind. That's all about unity. And then one in their wallets too, (laughs) generosity. See, that's how God's grace in this passage, there's lots of other things that God's grace does, but in this story here, that's how it changed the people. And that's how it should change all of us. It should make us love God. And as we love him, it makes us love the people around us, that we're of one heart together. It, It makes us think about him and know true things about him. And as we find other people who know those true things about him too, Jesus is alive then then we we're of one mind with them as well we're kind of thinking in the same direction moving in the same direction loving in the same direction and that unifies us not because we're trying to be united not because we're 
I don't know, ignoring each other's faults or just, I don't know, trying to get on a little bit better, working a bit hard. No, it's something that God does in us, that he makes us, helps us love one another as we love him. He helps us to think um, in the same direction, believing the same thing, one heart and one mind devoted to the Lord Jesus. You see, there's unity in the Christians. Well, where did that unity come from? Where can it come from with us? Maybe you don't feel particularly close to other Christians around you. Uh, maybe you have somebody in your rooted group or I don't know, somebody that you see in church, you just don't really feel connected to them. Maybe you can find them a little bit annoying or it's just difficult to get along with Christians sometimes, isn't it? Okay, well, how do we grow that unity? Well, what did they do here? Where does this unity come from? It comes from pressure and prayer. That's the story of the, the rest of Acts 4. They, they're under pressure. The religious authorities, the people around them, trying to make them be quiet, giving them a hard time, persecuting them. And they get together and they pray. And that pressure and prayer together, living under that prayer, uh, living under that pressure and um, taking it to God in prayer together, pulls them together, makes them forget the annoying things that they find about each other. It makes them better able to forgive each other because, they, because they're standing shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm and saying, come on, let's take this to our God. Let's remind each other who he really is. Let's ask him to come and help us. You see that? If you're feeling a bit disconnected from other Christians, get together. If you're feeling like you're not really one heart, one mind, well, pray together. And as we walk through life, there'll be pressure. There'll be difficult things. And as we walk through that together in prayer with others, I guarantee you it. I've felt it many times with my own rooted group, with people I've prayed with, with us together as a church, when we go through difficult times. And when we do that together in prayer, it pulls us together. So do we feel distracted from each other? Do we feel kind of disconnected? Do we feel like we're a bit cold to other Christians? Well, find a couple of them. Find a little rooted group. Come get involved on a Sunday. Um, give somebody a ring after the service online today and pray with somebody. That's one way we can grow to being of one heart and one mind with other people. But what about this other part of the change in the people? It's all about generosity. This first part of the change is about unity. This is about generosity. They're one in heart, one in mind, but they're also one in their wallets, right? What do they do? Well, no one claimed, verse 32, that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. God's grace was so powerfully at work among them that there was no needy person. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. It's a pretty simple strategy, isn't it? What would we need to do to, to make it so that in our community, in our church family, there was no needy person? What would it take? What would it cost? Well, it would take people being transformed by grace, not just being a bit more generous, you see, or trying harder to give more things. But it needs to be a work of grace, that we see all that God has done in our hearts, that we see all that God has done for us in Jesus, that we see the gift that he's poured out to us, that he who was rich became poor, so that we who are poor spiritually might become rich. Do you see the gift that God has given to us, this undeserved grace, that Jesus coming to rise again from the dead was something that really should never have happened. It's a pure gift of God's goodness to us, that his one and only beloved son, his most precious possession, 
Jesus himself, who God has loved from eternity past, that he gave him to be born of a woman, born of Mary, to be a kid growing up in a difficult job, working with his father, the carpenter, to be a young man who'd be rejected and kicked out of various places, abandoned by his friends, taken before a kangaroo court, accused, beaten, mocked, that he'd be poor the whole of his life and, and end his life in, in misery on a cross, naked with nothing. He who was rich, God, who made everything, became poor. Jesus died so that you and I, who are poor, spiritually nothing, nothing going for us, hearts of darkness, we who are poor might become rich. God has given us everything in Christ. Did you know that? Um, this Saturday, yesterday, by the time you'll be listening to this, um, I'm going to take a wedding. A part of that wedding, um, Tim and Rachel will be exchanging rings. And as they exchange those rings, they'll say to each other, all that I have, I give to you. And all that I am, I share with you. If you're a Christian, that's basically what you've done in giving yourself to Jesus. But you know that it's what he's done in giving himself to you as well? That you come to him and you say, Lord, all that I have, I give to you. My life, my sin, my failure, my hopes, my ambitions, everything that I am, I give to you. And he turns to you and says, you know what? All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. My life, my spirit, my relationship with my father, which could never grow cold. My place in heaven, my ambitions for, for you to be a part of a church, of a community, of a family that would stretch the whole way around the earth, made up of people of every tribe and tongue and nation. That's what Jesus wants. And he gives it to you to be a part of that. His own life, his own love, his own spirit to live within you. He gives us so much. His grace is thoroughly undeserved by us, isn't it? But he loves to pour it out on us for free. That's what grace is all about. So we need to know more of that, don't we? You need to know that God, who is rich, became poor. That he's made people like us who are poor to be rich. That we have everything. All things belong to us because all things belong to Christ. Did you know that? That everything in the world is really is yours in some sense. That one day when you die and rise again, you will rule over it with other Christians. You'll be a part of that with Jesus, enjoying this world. No regrets. No regrets about what we've lost or given up. So that should make us generous, right? Can you see how that should make us generous? That should make us open our bank accounts and say, oh Lord, thank you for giving me this. But what could I give away? Lord, thank you for giving me this sofa. What can, who could I invite over to use it with me, to sit down and have a cup of tea? Thank you for this car. How can I use it to move stuff around? Or could I sell it? I don't need two cars, really. Could I sell it and turn this car into something else, into food for the hungry, into a home for that that?" young couple to live in. It should make us look at our own home and say, no, this is not a castle for me to live in because I am not the king. There's that phrase, isn't there? An Englishman's home is his castle. I haven't quite worked out that same for Welsh people or not, but, but nobody's home should be their castle because we're not really the kings. Jesus is the king. He's the one who's defeated death. He's the one who owns and runs the world. So our homes, absolutely everything that we are, should be given over to him. Our lives should be a blank check written out to Jesus, signed by us and handed over to him to say, Lord, whatever you want, it's yours. Use it. That's what they do here, isn't it? Think of this man, Joseph, who they nicknamed Barnabas. He's a, a big character as the story goes on. So remember him, Barnabas, he's a Levite. 
which means he's a kind of he's an Israelite, but he lives in Cyprus and he takes this field that he has, a field that would have provided income for him, right? A field that would have been his children's inheritance if he had children, a field that would have been his retirement security, maybe, a field which is a pretty important possession. And he sells it. He's like, I don't need that. My treasure is in heaven. I'm going to trust Jesus to be my security. I'm going to trust him to look after my children and my um, grandchildren. I'm going to trust him with my daily bread. I don't need it. Somebody else needs it better than I do. And so he sells it and gives it and passes it on. Isn't that an amazing thing to do? I wonder if you've got anything. I wonder if you've got anything on your mind at the moment that you look around and you're not saying, uh, what can I spare? Okay, or, or what do I not really need anymore that I could give away? That's a, that's a beautiful form of kindness in itself. The shop, um, renew, uh, the food bank, that's the, that kind of generosity, isn't it? It's, I don't really need this. I'm going to give it away to somebody else who could use it better. That's a beautiful thing to do. But what Barnabas does is even more than that. What the early church here does is more than that, isn't it? It's not just saying, I'm going to give away a bit of my income each month before I spent it. Or I'm going to give away the stuff that I don't really need anymore. It's saying, looking around at the stuff that I do quite need, that I've already spent my money on. You know what? I think that could be better used. I think, even though I maybe I can't really spare this, I think I need to give this away. I think somebody else could use this better. I think if we're going to get to a place where there's no needy people, then, then this is what it's going to take to get to that. You see, we've got two questions there, right? One question is, what can I spare? That's a good thing to do. What can I spare and give away? But the next question is much more radical, is this. What will it take for people to be fed? What will it take for the good news of Jesus' resurrection, the hope that we have in him? What will it take for that good news to reach all the way around the world? All those hundreds and hundreds of billions of people who still haven't heard that news yet. What's it going to take? What am I going to need to sell and give for that to happen? You see, those are two big questions. What can I spare? What's it going to take to do what God has called us to do? Well, when God comes in power, when we really realise the truth of the resurrection, that he's king over everything, and that you're going to live one day forever with him, no regrets, means you can live open-handedly. means you could write that check to him. It means that you can get together with other people and pray. And as you're drawn together with them, you'll love them. And you'll want to look after them at great cost to yourself because... That's what God has done for us, isn't it? That's his grace shown to us. That at great cost to himself, his only son, his one and only son, he's looked after us. He's given us life. He's given us daily spiritual bread and hope for the future in him. He's given us so much. So what can we hold back? Don't ask this week. Don't ask, what can I spare? Ask, what's it going to take? What do I need to give away so that God's kingdom will advance? So that... Prayers will be answered so that people will be fed, so that people will hear the gospel. Um, by the way, if you're thinking um, that this is a sermon about kind of giving more money to the church so that I can have more money, so I can be paid better, and please don't think that. I'm paid very generously. I'm very um, well looked after by the church, and so is Sammy, and so are other church staff. So this isn't a kind of plea of kind of please give the church more money. No, this is a plea to be who we really are to recognise God's grace to us and to think, what is it that he wants me to do with these possessions? What can I give away? 
What could I be gracious and generous with so that his work could be done? Um, can we pray about that now? If you're not a Christian, well, um, that's not really a message for you just yet, is it? Um, being gracious, being generous, of course it's a good thing to do. Um, being united, loving others, of course that's a good thing to do. But the message for you today, really, if you don't really know Jesus, is to come and get to know him. Is to come and stand under this waterfall of goodness that he pours out on us. Is to come and bring him, bring your life to him with all your hopes and ambitions, all of your dark secrets. And say, Lord, would you forgive me? Lord, would you give me hope? Lord, would you draw me together with other people who love you? And would you help me to love them? If you are a Christian and you've been a Christian for a long time, well, what's the message for you? Well, it all flows from grace. Come and stand underneath this waterfall of grace. The Lord Jesus pouring himself out for you, giving you his Holy Spirit. And as you get grace, as you receive from him, what would you give to others? Don't hold things back. Don't ask, well, what can I spare? Look around at your house this week. Look around at your time this week. Look around at your life and think, winter's coming. Hard times are coming. How can I put my security in him? and not in my bank account, in my house, in my whatever. How can I trust him with the future? Not trust my money and my pension pot. How can I, what can I give? What can I give to others as he has given to me? Come on, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for giving yourself to us. Lord, we thank you that you've given your most precious, beautiful gift, your only son, to die for us and then to rise again and give us hope for the future. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit, your own life to live within us. We pray that that would transform us, that you would come in power and be among us. Help us to speak boldly about you. Lord, help us to always be giving people the hope of the resurrection in Jesus. It's a strange and weird message. Lord, we know that, but it's life for the world. So help us to be bold as we speak. And Lord, help us to be one with each other. We want to be a church that's united, that really loves each other, that is one heart and one mind. And we want to be a church that's one wallet too. Lord, we want to be a church that notices each other's needs and that is generous about meeting them. We want to be a church full of people who love to give away because you've given so much for us. So Lord, would you make us people like that? Lord, we admit that we're so often not like that. We're so often not generous. We're so often cold and love to hold on to things. Lord, we're so often scared and try and make the future secure by holding on to stuff. We ask, Lord, would you help us to be free? Would you help us to know that we're safe in you? Would you help us to know that you love us? And that as we get to know that, as we stand under the waterfall of your grace, Lord, we pray you'd make us generous, you'd make us united, and you'd make us bold in speaking for you. Amen.